0: Welcome to the Flex Success Podcast, where we teach you how to be less shit. Covering all things science, relating to nutrition, training, recovery, and more. Who knows, you might even sprinkle in a dick joke or two.
1: <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are joined with myself, Dean, my lovely partner in crime, Elizabeth.
0: Ew. <laughs> Don't. It's Lizzie.
1: <laughs> and today we're joined by um, our lovely coach, Thomas. Lovely I'm calling you by your
2: full name as well. So. Lovely is a strange so, <laughs> but I'll handle the Thomas. You're a lovely
1: bloke. <laughs> you know what you're more lovely of than a lovely man? Liz's disgusting cup of filthy, what is classified as coffee in Australia, uh, in a cup sitting next to me. For those playing at home, she is drinking Wicona with a single sweeper.
0: It is my preference because ain't nobody got no time for this 10-minute cold drip coffee bullshit. Dean is the biggest coffee snob I've ever met. Talk about
1: 10-minute cold drip. You don't know coffee. No, no I
0: don't. What cold do you... drips
1: at least three hours.
0: What do you have in the morning? See, there's my point. In the morning, you make this like, fancy situation. I just have a
1: filter or pour over coffee. Yeah. A filter
0: or pour over. Four right? and a half minutes. Well, I don't have four and a half minutes, Dean. I have a second to put a teaspoon of instant coffee in my cup. Look, Bob's your uncle.
1: Look, to talk about the inconvenience of my wish to drink coffee. I ran out of
0: beans yesterday, Tom.
1: And I had a consult before at eight o'clock. It's now nine o'clock and the coffee place that I get beans from doesn't open till eight. So I'm coffee free as of this morning.
0: You chose to go for no coffee over McCona's. Which means, yeah. Shame on I you. I may just get mad at you. 7-Eleven coffee uh, I get down and dirty with all the time. Dean refuses. because he turns his nose up. He thinks he's too good for it.
1: It's, it's all right. It's palatable. No. I wouldn't drink it black.
2: No,
0: um, so this is a podcast about coffee, yes, everyone. Is- yeah, you- well, i
2: I'm, have uh, I'm interest in coffee, you know. It makes me go fast and makes me anxious. <laughs> it doesn't. Do you, get, do, um, you get, no. do you get the associated anxiety from stimulants? Well, no, I find when I... So, like, for me, there's a very clear, like, dose relationship with coffee. Like, if I have two coffees, it's... I feel great, I feel really good, everything sort of rolls along. And then it's when I fly a bit too close to the sun that I start feeling just a bit crook. Um, but, like, something I often think about, like, philosophically with coffee even, I think, like, I don't like the idea that people need it. Yeah. <clears throat> like, I know so many people who, like, genuinely have to have a coffee every day. Yep. Um, so I'll often plan out times where I have, okay, for this two weeks, I'm not going to have a coffee. Let my tolerance come down a little bit, and then I'm going to return to it and actively enjoy it and see some better performance outcomes, rather than just giving myself like a lethal dose of caffeine and hoping I sleep at night.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like this is uh, not—it's not how it's typically used in regards to the terminology of the curse of knowledge. But I think a lot of people in the science world use the knowledge, knowing that caffeine is a performance enhancer, both cognitively and physically. And then they read the research that says that you should be taking somewhere between three milligrams and six milligrams per kilogram of body weight for a performance outcome. And they're like, cool, I'll just have that every day. It's like, no, no, no. In order for it to be a performance outcome, you can't become habituated.
0: And they think if yeah. six is good, then 12 must be better.
1: Oh, 100%. That's how everything works, isn't it? Like 12. Yeah. The funny is that there, was, there was a piece of research, this is back when I was at uni, that they were looking at caffeine-mediated um, glycogen reuptake post-workout.
0: Okay. 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 In order to
1: actually enhance it. And from memory, don't quote me if I'm wrong, people can tell me, please, if this has changed. If
0: you're right, quote him. If yeah, he's right. But wrong. Um,
1: the number was somewhere in the vicinity of, in order to get a statistically significant improvement in glycogen reuptake post training with caffeine, you needed somewhere in the vicinity of 10 to 12 milligrams per kilogram. So That's if you wanted to take that piece of data and say, a lot. I want to drive caffeine, <laughs> I want to drive um, carbohydrates post workout, do that. But you probably won't see that your fucking
2: performance anyway. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, that's the thing I often talk to people about. Like, because people like being evidence based is super trendy, and there are people looking at research like that and extrapolating. Hey, now I have six milligrams of caffeine per kilo body weight pre workout, and then twelve post workout. Um, And even though that might be like, you might be technically correct in that space, you've got to think about that bigger picture. Like. You don't sleep for three days because you had 38 coffees. Like, you're not getting any performance benefits from it. No, no
0: absolutely not. Mm. Um, which is kind of a good lead in to the topic that we really wanted to talk about today, which was considerations for performance optimization. Mm-hmm. Uh, caffeine maybe could play a role. Do you want to talk about that quickly? Maybe other supplements or things we could use. Uh, when looking at improving our performance. And which, when I say performance, uh, I'm not talking about, I'm specifically talking about athletic performance, not so much bodybuilding, but more like power athletes, mm. like um, power lifters or strong men, something like that. Or rugby players. Oh yeah, like you, Tom.
1: I like how South Africans say rugby.
0: Rugby, am I doing it?
1: No, uh, no, rugby.
0: Rugby, yeah. there you go, <laughs> <laughs> can't do an accent.
1: Jim Jeffries does a great South African accent. Does
0: he? Yeah. I just, I I start doing accents and I end up um, just sounding Indian, regardless of what accent I'm trying to do. Eventually, I'm Indian. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll stop at rugby. (laughs) And uh, over to you, Tom.
2: (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, I think the first thing that I often talk to people about with like supplementation is you're going to see really marginal benefits from supplementation, especially compared to just styling down and like ticking the boxes and hitting fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Um, the classic, I think it's poliquin, not that I want to quote poliquin, um, but the three C's. So like caffeine, creatine and carbohydrates for your performance. I think very often, and this is purely anecdotally, I think people like the idea of leaning on like a stimulant like caffeine or some kind of supplement because it gives themselves an impression of them chasing the one percenters when in reality, there are probably more fundamental things they can dial down and fix. Mm. Um, classic example being sleep. Um, like I know so many people who are supplementing lung out of themselves, like tracking all their macros and they're getting six hours of sleep uh, most nights and it's like you've, I understand why that's appealing to people, especially because a lot of people who love performance sport tend to be quite obsessive and really care about their body. But there's these like big, low-hanging like, fruit you can pick and get a bit more gain out of.
0: Yeah. I guess they're not considering the pyramid of importance there um, because they're doing things at the very top of the pyramid that's going to have the least amount of effect. And, yeah, and not, not looking at the lower yeah. part of the pyramid. I think that's nuts. I, I, there's I never compromise my sleep because i know the next day i'm not going to be able to manage my hunger um, i know my energy's going to be all over the place i'm not going to be very efficient i'm not likely to get all of my steps in because i'm so tired mm. my lifts are going to go down and you can't fix that shit just with a coffee like it doesn't it doesn't work like that
1: yeah it's a really interesting psychological consideration as to why people want to sprinkle the pixie dust in preference for the basics but i think it's
2: probably just cuz the basics exist
0: cuz they're boring
2: as a part of life yeah that's why Ooh. I- I had this conversation with a client yesterday, who um basically I like looked at their nutrition um, and saw how they had this like really really variable intake. They had no real food behaviours or routines. It was very much whatever was in front of them at the time. And instead of giving them like a macronutrient target, I said, okay, like let's like establish like this idea of the foundation diet. Let's have like feedings of lean protein and vegetables across your day let's see five serves of vegetables two serves of fruit and then once we have that in place we can talk about manipulating things but that kind of approach does not sound fancy or impressive it doesn't validate you as a practitioner like i think there's definitely a stage where online coaches especially sort of touted this idea of hey like i'll calculate your macros for you and they'll be custom designed to your goals and they can tick these boxes um, when they just use like what's effectively just like an Excel calculator. Yeah. Um, and that sounds really nice and to pay, like, like a lot of the people, especially people who do bodybuilding and powerlifting who are like obsessive and they love the numbers and they're data driven. You're putting them in this position where, Hey, here's another thing I can like perceive to maximize or improve. But the reality is like, it's potentially unnecessary.
1: Mm. I um I had this conversation yesterday on a podcast and um the question was something along the line not lines the flex of, podcast no, on a, on another podcast. Mm. Uh the, the question was along the lines of something on like how much stock do you put in controlling calories and protein versus calories, protein, carbs and fats when it comes to manipulating body weight. And I was just like, behaviors matter <laughs> more. Mm. Fat loss is really easy on paper. So is weight gain, so is maintenance. Yeah. Everything's really, really easy on paper but it's the behaviors that are associated with trying to implement that basic maths that people do do as the, the coach. that
2: becomes. Yeah, the, well, I think that's the question we all sort of asked ourselves too. When you find out for the first time about calories in calories out, it's like I've solved obesity. <laughs> you know, like I have the answer. Um, <laughs> like how have they not figured this out yet? Yeah. Like, wow. Like, have they tried eating less and moving more? <laughs> um, no, like, like, like the um, like understanding there's more to that is really useful. Like, I think I do. To be fair, though, I think like there are contexts where like manipulating your macronutrient intakes is useful, especially like if you're a powerlifter before competition, you can drop your carbohydrates down, like shed a bit of water weight. Um, there's definitely like appropriate times for that, and if you do genuinely want to chase every single one percenter. That's probably an idea, but like the idea of the pyramid, I think, did you mention that before, Lizzie?
0: Pyramid of importance, yeah. Yeah,
2: and I think that's a really useful like, metaphor for that because like, you, you have to have those foundations in place to be able to take advantage of that sort of top tier. Mm. Mm.
0: Instead of jumping straight to the least important things before the most important things have been established. Yeah. As an mm. example to this, I um, had a client who started with me like maybe 14 weeks ago. And she'd previously lost a bunch of weight just counting her macros and she sort of fell off the bandwagon and um, she, she jumped on, on board with coaching because she wanted to get back to it with a bit of support. And I didn't start her on macros until maybe like 10 weeks in because what she ended up doing is she was eating to macros, but she was eating like 80, 90% of her food before midday just because she could and using poor quality food. And she was starving for the rest of the day. She was getting sick all the time because her uh, nutrient density was really low. And she was just kind of going insane from this hunger. But, you know, she fit it within her macro. So she didn't think it was a problem. And that's why oh. she ended up gaining all the weight back because she couldn't adhere to the principles because she hadn't set up a good foundation yet. So um, yeah. we ended up doing what, what you previously uh, mentioned or a slight modification of that where we're like, great, instead of eating all of your food before midday, let's space these out three to four meals a day, lean protein and veg in each main meal. Remaining calories should go to good quality fats, some carbs and, and some fun food. And we didn't even bother about looking at macros. We just knew that if she ate low energy dense food most of the time um, and she spaced her meals out so she wasn't so hungry, she performed better, she slept better. And we lost quite a lot of weight before even... Moving on to macros.
1: Yeah, actually manipulating specifics. Yeah. But rather behaviours. Yeah. And this is something that awesome. I, yeah, a mentor of mine once said too, and this goes back to your conversation before about performance even too, Tom, is uh, the mindset of an athlete for him. So, so this is from Broderick Chavez. And his main demographic of individuals that he originally worked with were uh, the, the athletics population, track and field. And he <laughs> said, like, the, the common thing that they would mention to a lot of the sprinters was think fast. Like you're a sprinter, think fast. So all of their actions resulted around like, how am I a faster person? And when I speak to people in comp prep, I often say to them like, think lean. I stole it from Broderick and I'm like, and I said, I stole this from my friend, but this is what I'm saying. Think lean. Like if all of your behaviors that you are putting in place from a day-to-day basis are centered around the concept of thinking lean, you'll likely make good choices. And if we think performance, it's probably the same because then we can now tie this in and kind of go, all right. What are the what are the the pyramids of importance as well when it comes to performance? And then how do we associate the mindset to maximize those? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So
0: when I,
2: I, I think you go. Oh no. sorry. I, I think like that sort of it's like almost you're you're starting at your destination and then you're like looking back and going what kind of things do I need to f- facilitate that outcome? Mm. Is like super useful. And there was a tra- a tr- a stage in the powerlifting world where that was super trendy with comp planning. Um, it's becoming less fashionable now with like the rise of RPE and like reactive training systems and a bit more emphasis on having some kind of variability. So um, having some kind of auto regulation in your load selection, but there was a stage where coaches would literally go, okay, you've got a comp in 12 weeks. I expect you to get five kilos better than last time. Let me work backwards from that point and go, what kind of things do you need to do? 12 weeks out, nine weeks out, six weeks out to facilitate you getting that five kilo personal best. Yes. Yeah, so you would essentially plug the
1: lift and then, re- and then reverse engineer percentages based on the intended lift,
2: not on the yeah. you're currently experiencing.
0: Why do you think it's less trendy now?
2: I th- possibly because, possibly just because of like arbitrary swings in programming trends. Um, RTS, the reactive training systems have a really large amount of, athletes who are very much at the top of the population, like lots of IPF world champions, people going to world championships, national championships. And I think that's really good for their brand and for getting that out there. And I think they have really good ideas around individualizing and progressing training cycles towards the needs of the individual. So I think that's really smart. Um, And I like their idea of having like constructing a structure of if you train at a similar perceived effort for six weeks, this is the trend in your training performance. Mm-hmm. I think the the trick behind that almost is if you're like, if you're training under that framework and you're seeing your training response continue to improve unintentionally, you almost potentially end up like you've got this sort of linear progression, like you'd be expecting anyway. Mm. Um, so like for the sake of an arbitrary example if you're training with like a top if you've been doing sets of eight for the past five six weeks and then you're given a new structure where you have a top triple at RPA eight, and then back off fives like for want of an example what you're probably gonna find is in your first week that like that triple you do is like comparatively more difficult And then after a few weeks you find you get better because of specificity, you get better at executing the triple and you'll see your performance trend up on average over time. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the time people love, people love having fancy ideas and concepts behind their training, but often they end up like approaches, which work often tend to have like core similarities. Mm -hmm. And I think in this case, in the ideal world, when you have that response to training, and your RPA stays the same but your performance increases, you're almost engaging in a similar behavior to the individual who's like planned out that progression. Yeah. It's just more reactive. So if you're getting better much more quickly, you have the capacity to accelerate that. Because mm-hmm. you're not limited by um, pre-plugged-in pre, pre numbers. No. And I think that's really useful, and it's something a lot of lifters using that system seem to experience really large spikes in personal bests. And I, I suspect part of that could be a product of the fact that RPE, even though we love the idea that that's like a quantitative variable, it's still somewhat qualitative. Mm. There's a bit of a joke in the powerlifting world about like RPE 8 because often there's like a, often when you do a hard set, it's inclined to feel at about an 8. And for a lot of people, like if like even I'm guilty of this actually, there was a stage where Will, my powerlifting coach, was giving me like a re- a weight range to hit my like top setting. and what I found was I would convince myself like especially if there's a large scope like and like you could feel like an eight maybe anywhere between two hundred and ten and two hundred and twenty five kilos. I'd convince myself, oh, like my personal best is two twenty. Let's do two twenty five. And then afterwards, I'll be like, yeah, that's about Um And sure, like, that's not, yeah, well, like, that's not the intended use of the system. But for a lot of people, and people, again, it's drawing people who are very numerically motivated, who really love the idea of eking out performance gains, um, the system also provides a estimated wonder at max. So there's very much the potential of people, even subconsciously, gaming that system to make themselves feel like they're continuing to get better. Mm. Um, and I think part of the reason that's been so successful is because there was this big trend in like sub-maximal training for quite a while, so leaving plenty of reps in the tank, having good technique and treating it as a little bit more like practice, at least for your competition lifts, um, and I think if you do that, if you train in that paradigm for a long period of time, you, your returns slowly taper off, but switching from that to a paradigm where you're consistently hitting like RP sevens, eights, um, working much harder and ex- being exposed to high can- higher intensities for much longer is going to give you this sort of imagined improvement in performance almost immediately. Mm-hmm. Whether that's actually the solution long term, though, I don't know. I suspect there's, it's one of those cases where there's just tools for applications in like different contexts.
0: Yeah.
2: Hey, just for the newbies, can you quickly explain RPE? Okay, so the, the RPE stands for Rate of Perceived Exertion. The origins of it, as far as I know, come from a scale called the Borg RPE, which was out of twenty and used for like gauging aerobic or like session difficulty, with the idea that the a twenty would be roughly equated to one hundred percent of your predicted heart rate max. So, like, if you're 20 years old, your predicted heart rate max would be 200 BPM and that wouldn't be fun doing that. Um, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd make it there in seconds on a roll <laughs> um The idea would be if your session was, like, an RPE 14 out of 20 in that context, your heart rate would be sitting roughly around the 140 mark. That's actually quite an effective tool. Like, if you ask clients and people to gauge difficulty in an aerobic context like that, that tends to be a pretty good predictor. I'm actually really impressed to how good that is. The RPA, which is used very often in powerlifting context is linked to an idea of reps and reserve. It was popularized, I believe by Mike Tashira, um, who's really smart dude, is a big driver. He's like part of RTS and he's a big driver of that methodology. But that idea is, so an RPA 10 would mean you have zero reps in reserve. And then there's an inverse relationship with how many reps in reserve you have and your RPE. So an RPE 8 would be, I can do roughly two more reps. An 8.5 would be, I can definitely do one, I can maybe do two. Um, and then, et cetera, working your way down. So that, yeah, that's how that system works. Yeah. 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 And, that's, and that's from
1: volitional fatigue to and mechanical breakdown, not through force reps or anything like that.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I find it quite annoying when um, if I mean I haven't benched with a barbell for a while, uh, but at the gym when I used to ask people to spot me, I would just mean if the weight is about to crush my rib cage or my neck, please take it off me. Is all I mean by hey, can you spot me? And I'm I'm tracking my performance and unless I made the rules really fucking crystal clear to whoever is spotting me first, which can come across rude sometimes or condescending to the person I'm asking to spot me, they end up uh, making me do forced reps because they're assisting the bar the whole time. I'm like, how much am I actually doing? I don't know how close to failure I'm actually getting mm-hmm. because you're like, you're deadlifting my bench press right now. <laughs> Hands off the bar. <laughs> yeah, you were. Hands off the bar. <laughs> <happening? laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's quite I, find,
1: I find that interesting. Um, that, that scale for aerobic to heart rate max, perceived heart rate max, is so effective because having listened to um, the guys on, um, oh, I've just gone Blake for a second. Greg Knuckles podcast.
2: Stronger by science.
1: Yeah, Stronger by science. My God. Um, Eric on there, Eric Trexler, was saying that the heart rate max predictor was actually essentially just a made up number and it somehow has just found its way into the industry and, and being retained.
0: The two twenty. Yeah. So <laughs> Yeah.
2: That, has no, that's, that's, that has no clinical relevance whatsoever. Yeah, like, it, and I think like, oh, that's almost in my head. That's like almost like expli- Like, that's almost obvious in its construction because it's just like a linear response. Ooh. And like, if you're fifty, like, there's such a vast array of how aerobically healthy fifty-year-olds are. <laughs> um, mm. But yeah, it's. I think that's like in my head. That makes that question of how that's so effective almost a little more compelling and interesting because like we know that that like made up, like that heart rate thing is effectively made up um, or like it's like fairly arbitrary and it's not actually like a useful guide. Um, yeah, it might
1: be like blood panels for sedentary individuals it might be like, it's, it's relevant for people who don't really train, don't do too much, live a fairly normal yeah. life and, and they're on the standardized progression expected for life quality and life expectancy but
0: maybe not for athletes. maybe not for
1: anybody anything other than those those small cohort of
2: people i suspect it could be almost a thing a bit like bmi where it's like useful on a population level um like if you rounded up a bunch of 80 year olds their heart rates probably shouldn't get as high as 200 (laughs) um but yeah
1: yeah it'd be the it'd be the sum of average yeah yeah
0: Exactly. So what are some other um, important things that people should be considering if they're looking to improve their performance in the gym from like, like a, a power perspective, not, not performance for bodybuilding? Because what even is that yeah. hypertrophy, which is an outcome? Is,
2: not... <laughs> is it, how well you dance? That's what I've heard.
0: How well you dance?
2: Yeah. All
0: right. That's a new one.
1: Yeah, please. What's,
0: what style of dancing are we talking?
1: <laughs> oh, for bodybuilders, you know?
0: Oh, dancing yeah. in their sparkly undies on stage, right? Yeah. yeah. It's,
1: it's it's actually how well you perform.
0: <laughs> Hang on, are you winking at me? What sort of performance are we talking about? No, I just thought I'd do a It's a performance out. sport. <laughs> Except you perform your absolute worst on your day of competition. No, it's, it's is... artistry performance. <laughs> right.
1: You know, it's That's like right. going to the theatre.
0: Oh, the theatre. <laughs> Uh, All right, so what sorts of things um, should performance athletes be considering? We've previously touched on the importance, or not so much, of supplements uh, and looking at low-hanging fruit like sleep and whatnot. But what are some other things that we should be looking So On
2: on a similar theme, I think doing a needs assessment for the athlete is like super, super useful, Mm -hmm. Um, especially as I think powerlifting increases in popularity and more and more younger people get into it. I think it's kind of it's a little bit disappointing to a lot of especially like young men in the early 20s late teens to realize that the thing which is probably going to make them best at powerlifting resembles more like a bodybuilding training with bias towards your pecs your triceps your quads and your glutes Um, because like in those cases a lot of those individuals don't have a, a lot of lean mass so I think if you're if you're an individual who's under muscled or not or who has the potential to feel like a frame, putting some time and attention into building a bit more muscle, you still practicing and working those powerlifting movements, but biasing your accessory work towards some harder hypertrophy work, making sure you're taking care of your nutrition so you can gain some weight is super useful. Conversely, though, I think there are individuals who've done like a lot of bodybuilding style work and have plenty of muscle and have quite good body composition where a large part of what they need to do is almost more down the line of a practice slash exposure to like the specific stimulus kind of question. Mm. Um, so like learning, this is how I can effectively improve the competition lift. Um, these are some technical things I can implement to try and improve that.
0: Mm. Yeah, because of the relationship between how much muscle you have and your performance. So those with yeah, a so small amount of muscle mass should work on hypertrophy, whereas those with a lot of muscle mass should work more on squat bench dead and less on hypertrophy.
2: Yeah. And you'll probably find the larger individuals as they are probably can't hack quite as much volume in the first place too. Mm-hmm. So you'll find as you get, or even like, like I'm by no means a particularly strong powerlifter, but I definitely found in the past two years, I began to get a lot more beaten up from my training. Um, like my squat went from about 200 to 250 and when i could squat when i when my max was 200 i could do comparatively a lot more harder work a lot closer to that whereas as i got stronger that's simply not the case and that trend definitely escalates um i know you guys are friends with him but if you look at will crazy training that's a really cool example of that because he's comparatively not doing a huge amount of sets per week, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's lifting some incredible loads and like training really hard and continues, seems to be continuing to improve.
0: Still takes him a bloody long time.
2: Yeah. Um, <coughs> I was going to was... say, maybe
1: you will just run an RP, RP sixes make this whole time. you finally <laughs> found a true eight. <laughs>
2: um,
0: so what are you putting that down to?
2: The regression and the... load? Regression for myself. Oh, sorry, not load the
0: amount of working sets that you're able to do as you get stronger.
2: I think so. I have a pocket theory that part of what limits people's progress is the capacity of their body to recover from the training stimulus. Mm-hmm. So, like often, often I think you look at people's progress and they continue to improve, and then as they improve, they require more stimulus to improve. Mm-hmm. and as that stimulus gets larger, the amount of work you need to do to induce that also gets bigger. And then theoretically, there exists a point, at least in my head, where you can no longer do enough work under the curve and have your body recover sufficiently in time to continue to improve. Mm-hmm. Whether whether people actually reach that in reality is like a different discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think like, because you're not just like, even though it'd be nice, if you were just limited by your muscles, you're not entirely limited by your muscles. Like you've got to consider your tendon adaptation. So like something which is really common with a lot of athletes who are using spicy creatine, um, is that they start to experience, um, like they start to experience like heaps more tendon issues. And part of that is because, like, the rate of adaptation in their muscle is, like, far superior to the rest of their connective tissue. Um, so I think that's part of what limits that progression and also part of why you've got to be more and more careful about overuse injuries.
0: When you say spicy creatine, just for those who didn't catch on, I think uh, Tom's talking about steroids here, performance-enhancing drugs.
1: That is a great
0: analogy, yes. though. Spicy creatine.
1: Like, I've heard muscle muscle meds, I've heard... You know, obviously there's half natty, not natty. <laughs> there's the enhanced. Enhanced became sort of the gentleman's way to say, you take drugs, don't you? Are you enhanced? <laughs> yes, I'm enhanced.
0: Spicy creatine.
1: Spicy creatine. Put but, that on a T-shirt. But sometimes spicy is not always good.
0: Spice is always good, Dean. Or maybe not on lubricant. It
1: burns, man. Yeah. Um, it's, it's funny that you've actually, like, you've used Will as an example and then you've got also your domain in IPF and, and tested federations because I've... I've uh, regularly pulled parallels between the two of them to explain where you may want to put more of your time and effort into hypertrophy versus skill acquisition by using them, because I think they actually are yes. like an interesting um, an argument or an interesting they're they're a really interesting um, example of this in practice. So you take an a tested natural athlete who's at the peak of their weight class, and let's say they're advanced; they've been trained for six to eight years. The opportunity for you to gain muscle now is is essentially diminished. Like you're kind of at your genetic uh, potential, you have no more like proclivity to, to gain more muscle. So really, what you're going to work is skill acquisition and performance enhancement, and those is that's where you tend to see like that very typical. Uh, there is a, the heavy focus on just repetition of work, not so much hypertrophy training. But then you take a a natty who hasn't necessarily hit their weight potential yet, may want to spend more time doing the hypertrophy because it takes longer. And we know that there's a correlation between that. And then you flip into the the geared federations. And because their weight load is so high, the fatigue is also high. And even though they have an increased recovery capacity, that load is just, it's beyond what your body is supposed to handle. So you can't handle much of it. So they actually probably need to spend more time doing the hypertrophy because they're never limited by hypertrophy because they have drugs in their play to do that. What they are limited by is their recoverability. So they need to spend less time doing the skill acquisition, more time doing the volume, more time doing the you know, secondary work. And that's like where Will's, I think, separated himself from a lot of people in that side of powerlifting, where he's stepped yeah. away from saying, hey, being specific all the time comes at a cost.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, I, and I can't I think that, that. That's, is he still being coached by Melbourne strength culture? Not currently. I think that just because obviously with COVID going on, Melvin's I think yeah. you know, Jamie's had to redirect some of his energy, but um, no, okay. not enough, for sure he has to Yeah, because yeah. I I know
2: that's something they're fairly big on in that they like the idea of being able to do less specific hypertrophy blocks and potentially look after your body a little bit more and move a little bit better. Um, and then because you've got like the requisite structure to shift that load, it's and like people. If you're already highly skilled at bench pressing, you're not going to forget to bench. Um, Like if you just do dumbbells and you just use dumbbells and dips and you try and make your chest a bit bigger, you'll probably find upon reintroducing pause bench press, there's a couple of weeks where it feels a bit funky and then you find your groove quite nicely again. Um, There's even like probably a reasonable argument on a motor learning front that if you have like a persistent technical flaw, which you can't seem to address, Spending some time off and letting that skill decay might facilitate you relearning it easier in a better way, but I'm not entirely convinced on that front. Mm. I mean, it would be a really
1: interesting conversation if we had Maddie Bartholomew on right now, because I'm almost certain that he has essentially just gone through a block of heavily reverse benching because it's his strongest lift, um, and then having yeah. reintroduced it not too long ago on a more of a consistent basis, he's one found some technical shifts, and he's like, "I'm at my best." And I barely even drained bench, but yeah. because I've gone into a, uh, like a specific phase for deadlifts, I've really upped that one.
0: S- <laughs> I'm just not clear on why he's done it. He's done it so that he can put his energy into the lifts that weren't his best lifts.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah. It'd be the same as like you know, if I, like right now I'm doing three a week back hypertrophy sessions, and mm-hmm. I only do five sets of chest and five sets of legs because yeah. they're they're
2: taking a yeah. the backward step for the for the benefit of the back. Mm. I think I think one thing especially to give like Matt the plug to like, he's a superbly professional operator. Ooh. And I think he's been on that, he's been on board that train of, I need to look after my body and like fix the things to facilitate me doing the most work possible over the longest period of time possible. Like he's been big on that for quite quite a while. He'd be one of, in my eyes, one of the front runners with that school of thought. And I think like in, in his case, he's gone like, I know you are a peck niggle towards the end of last year, I think he's gone like, I can step away from that fix. Like what's the underlying causal issue? Like that could be like, I know nothing about what the actual issue was. Um, but in some context, that could be like, how do you position your scabs? What are you doing as you press? Like you can address like that underlying issue and that problem, make yourself healthy. And then that way, then when you return to training, you're capable of hacking more load and driving more adaptation and continuing to improve. And I think he's also a good example of that because he seems to consistently get better, like, um, like a reasonable amount, but like a moderate amount over a really long period of time. And that makes him quite good.
0: Yeah, mm. I think it takes a lot of maturity for someone to step back and really address the problem because they are taking backward steps in the short term, which can really hurt the ego. Um, yeah. But when you think about the long game, there's clearly some benefits in doing that. But I can see people's hesitation because they're like, oh, but I'm going (laughs) to lose this in the short term. Sure, I'm going to gain three steps long term and take two steps like short term. So I can see why it takes a commercial person to do
2: that. Especially in domains like powerlifting because like for a sport where there's no money in it and like there's not many competitions even happening at the moment, there's a lot of people whose identity is really lapped wrapped up in it and it's a massive part of their self-concept and I think like if you tell someone who identifies as a powerlifter has like their best numbers in their bio um, and that is their world if you tell them hey like we need to step away from this for three months and this is their only hobby it's like the thing they dedicate 12-15 hours a week to that idea is really terrifying yeah Mm even though like they can probably rationally appraise, I know this will make me better.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah. There seems to be a disconnect between the necessity or disconnect between understanding that they still have the machinery available to, to produce strength. It's just that they need that then they, they then need to relearn the skill, which happens so far. Yeah.
2: And that you only yeah, get from, think-
1: from one day, you know, every now and then, not every yeah.
2: Yeah. And like framing that as a long, framing that as a long-term pursuit is also a really useful exercise in that manner. Um, I know like totally anecdotally for me, this was meant to be, this is my last year of juniors competing under powerlifting Australia. And I was like, I'm going to optimize everything for junior nets this year. I'm going to like focus on this. I'm going to die down and execute really well. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to like absolutely do my best. Um, and then about eight weeks ago i tore my bicep fem playing like effectively parked footy um, which wasn't a good idea Um, but then four weeks later hurt the semi tendonosis on the same leg and something i thought about with that was like i pulled out a junior nap so i sort of reflected that in many ways age group sport really narrows how far you're looking ahead and makes you feel like you're rushing and potentially make not good decisions. Like I had, I had a, a fairly meaningful hip niggle with some like hip impingement that I just like basically rehabbed until I could continue to squat and deadlift instead of actually fixing it. Whereas instead I think responsibly and with the benefit of hindsight, you can look at that and go, okay, I've got potentially another 10, 15 years pursuing this sport Like you have so much time to get better. Spending three months now, like ticking some boxes and making things a lot better will actually facilitate you going so much further than if you just do junior nats and burn out, get injured and never compete again. Yeah,
0: totally. I know this is a podcast about performance and not bodybuilding, but in a similar vein, I see bodybuilders make the same mistake where obviously to look like a good bodybuilder, you need to be quite large and very lean. Um, For stage day and when people have their identities wrapped up in that, they don't take uh, an efficient off season where they gain weight, maybe lose their abs, Mm -hmm. get a little fluffy in the name of growing more muscle, in the name of hypertrophy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they end up staying lean year round and they get back on stage about the same weight Mm -hmm. without any, any weight gain.
1: I think it's very much the same too. You were talking before, Tom, about the... Palate is being weight and not weight categorized. That's what I'm going to talk about is their age categorization, where you think, Oh, I'm going to get all this done by the time I'm a junior. And similarly, we see a lot of dudes that are like, say, six foot five and maybe scraping 85 kilos, cutting it to make weight. And it's like, hang on a minute, you're six foot five. Like, eventually, you're going to need to be 100. So, like, let's not waste time regressing now because you're just going to inhibit your ability to progress later. Uh, and I think yeah. even weight cutting can sometimes be like that
2: too, because people don't have the, have the capacity to look long term yeah well i I think it's like ultimately you've got to ask yourself what's actually the most important thing and like to what degree are you invested in doing this seriously Mm. um like i think it's totally reasonable if you're involved in powerlifting and you are six foot five and you want to be 85 kilos because you want to have abs like that's okay to want to do that within those constraints because like it's your life and it's your pursuit but you've got to acknowledge that in doing so, within that box, these are the limitations which come attached to it. Um, because, like, we're not. I think it's really like it's really trendy to be like, "Hey, like this, like powerlifting is my life. Like this is what I love. It's all I do. It's what I'm focused on." But the reality is, like, for the majority of people, that's not their like number one priority, and it probably shouldn't be. Um, I don't think we're all willing to make necessarily the sacrifices it takes to become like the best in the world at something, but acknowledging that and going, okay, like I'm, I engage with this as a hobby. It brings joy to my life and it's fun. Um, but I'm not willing to, cause if I wanted to be as strong as possible, I'd be 160 kilos instead of 90. Mm. Um, and like, we all have those limits, even if we don't explicitly talk about them. It's like the same reason why so many people compete in like tested powerlifting, instead of deciding to go non-tested. Like if all you cared about was your maximal strength with no bounds around that, you'd use like performance dancing drugs to achieve that.
0: Or spicy um, creatine.
2: Ooh. Spicy creatine as well, yeah. Straight to the Taj that well. right.
1: <laughs> That's so Straight great. Straight to the Taj Mahal. Yeah, It's true. Uh, I, I have often said to people like, I do life season and then I do prep season because, Life season is easier for me and it suits with what I like.
0: You still train hard. I still
1: train hard, but I don't eat hard.
0: Well, you you (laughs) eat really well.
1: No, I eat well, but I don't force the limits of weight gain because I've never been willing to feel uncomfortable because it impacts my life too much. Whereas this was for the first time, you know, you know what? I want to actually push this and see what it feels like and see if it is actually tolerable and whether or not I like it or whether or not I don't. Uh, And, you know, And then people will be throwing bullshit things like, oh, you want a pro card? Like, no, I'm not willing to take the sufficient level of drug that's required to do that because I'm aware of my genetic limitations. So I I think um, you're right. Like, so long as you understand the constraints with which you're working in and you're okay with that, then go full steam ahead. But if your goal is to be the best at X, then that's going to come with some form of restraint in other parts of your life that
0: you need to acknowledge. Yeah, and a bunch of costs.
2: For sure. Yeah. And like you, you sort of, you make the cost regardless, you know what I mean? Um, like it's a conversation I'll often have with female clients about like people wanting to have abs, like for a lot of women, women trying to do that is not ideal for your health. Um, and if you, like, if you come to me, like fully informed, well, educated, putting yourself in a position where you've made that decision for like a solid reason which actually matters and not like I'm trying to handle body image issues and issues in an eating disorder with the help of a coach. Like I don't think there's necessarily anything that wrong with pursuing that. But again, I think it's like, are you doing that in the appropriate context and understanding I'm paying for this now um, by doing this other thing.
0: Mm, And if the client comes to you saying, Hey, I want to get abs and they have the expectation that they can still go out drinking on the weekend and enjoying tacos most nights of the week, it's the job's responsibility to then engage with what we call informed consent Mm. and telling the client, great, if you consent to the following sacrifices that you need to make, then we can pursue your goal of having a six pack or whatever the goal might be. Because I think coaches go wrong when they're a bit afraid of losing the client um, and they say, yeah, no worries. Great, great, great. You can have your cake and eat it too. You can get the six pack and it won't impact any other areas of your life, which is bullshit
2: and on that it's, it's super exciting as a coach when someone comes to you with serious performance or body composition goals um, like it's it's awesome when someone comes to you is like oh hey like I want to be like the best at this or I want to be super strong and they really care and focus about it one because it probably doesn't make your job easier but it makes the way you manage the client different mm-hmm. so you're probably putting a bit more work into like managing the emotional side of things and, like educating them about the process and less trying to convince them to, like, do all their sessions. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's far more directive and goal-driven, I think, like. Yeah. Mm. But it, but it's also, like, because people get excited about that, sometimes they need to step back as coaches and go, okay, is this, like, to what degree do I need to give this person disappointing news? hmm Yeah. Yeah, mm.
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I feel like we could talk all day about, uh, this topic and, and performance, but perhaps for the listeners who have jobs and, and can't hang out with us on the podcast all day. What do maybe... people
1: in Sydney listen to us? We've got hours. They're, <laughs> Why? In, the car. The... They're in the car for hours.
0: Oh, oh, Sydney traffic. I do not miss that. <laughs> Holy
2: shit. This is very true.
0: Oh, the second I return, because I grew up in Sydney for what, the first 25, 26 years of my life. Um, Love Sydney, but moved to the Gold Coast. Whenever I go back to visit Sydney, I leave the airport and within like 15 minutes, I'm like, oh, this is, I remember this. My resting heart rate jumps. <laughs> my blood, my blood at, pressure rises. You're at 200 in the taxi. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: Makes, <laughs> makes for a good pub in the gym. though.
0: <laughs> so maybe we'll um, we'll start our wrap-up questions as something worth sharing. What have you got for us today, Tom?
2: Something worth sharing. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say the motivational interviewing mm-hmm. course we're going through. Um, so at the moment we're all the flex coaches are doing a course called motivational interviewing which looks at like motivations for change and understanding change talk and how people interact with you um, super it's really made me reframe a lot of my interactions and particularly like the questions I ask clients and people about why they're doing things and also the things which are, they're doing to resist change. So that's been really good. Would recommend to anyone out there who's a coach. Yeah. And that one we do on PsychWire.
0: Yeah, we're doing it which on PsychWire.
2: Link in the channels, of
0: course. We are up to, we're in week five now, aren't we? So nearly at the end uh-huh. of the call.
2: Yeah, week five. Yeah. I'm halfway through it, don't spoil it, please. <laughs> <laughs> I won't.
0: Uh, now, the second question. If you could edit any gene in either the general population or in yourself, which gene would you edit and why?
2: In myself, strictly not a gene. Like the, the purist in me disagrees with my answer to this. Um, but I'd improve my genes around my hips because I'm tired of them hurting all the time without me having to do rehab. Um, but more broadly, I think like it's, it's funny because like our discussion of everything has a cost sort of comes to mind on this because my immediate response was I'd improve like our body's tendons capacity to like exert force and have a little bit more elasticity, which would help people do more work and training under the curve and also make us better long distance runners, which humans are also really good at. But then uh, the more I thought about that, the more I thought, Oh, there's probably like really meaningful consequences in terms of like the nature of our injury. I think a lot of our, like the appeal to nature fallacy isn't at all a good way of making logical conclusions but a lot of the parts of our body and how we work do exist so for a reason yeah um and i think if we were to like say make our tendons a lot stiffer and better exerting force you'd probably find there are consequences up or downstream somewhere as a result of that
1: yeah i always liken it to the shoulder like in in our strength world that we live within Man, it's a garbage joint. Mm. Well, it's not even. <laughs> I think right? that's it's proof that, that God doesn't it. exist. I'm like, God damn, dude. Like, who the hell puts these two solid bone masses together and says, let's just put some rubber bands on either side and it'll work? Like that. But then, yeah. like, by virtue of the way
2: in which it's made, is what also provides it its incredible function.
0: For the mobility. Well,
2: the, the best subject I ever did at uni was a subject called Comparative Primate Anatomy. Where we looked at like human shoulders, chimpanzee shoulders, gorilla shoulders, and like Neanderthal shoulders, and looked at the subtle anatomical differences and how they explain function. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. And it's it's super incredible. Like I told you all day about it, but it's super incredible how there are these small structural things happening like at our joints, which make our shoulders. Like we are so good at throwing. Um, like a, a chimpanzee can throw at like a max speed of like 33 k's an hour or something Ooh. and hu- there are human beings throwing things at upwards of how fast can baseball players pitch 140 like 150 know. 160 yeah there you go, yeah yeah Crazy. so like and like cricket fast bowlers can hit 140s 150s like fairly regularly like it's it's absolutely incredible how we have these like subtle adaptations just to make us super good at this action but again, like we're sitting at desks and like pressing things really hard with pinned scapulae. Like, there's no, like, we're not designed to do that. Like, it doesn't make sense. It's not good at that.
0: I don't see any caveman powerlifting.
2: I
1: reckon I've got one. Yeah. More. What? Like a functional thing of the body that like, surely we could have fixed that. Right. Why couldn't we have two esophagus? One that goes to, to the lungs and one that goes to the stomach. Why in the hell would you have this tiny little flap of thing, the epiglottis, that stops you from choking to death?
0: Maybe it's harder for uh, someone to do a choke on you in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And oh,
1: that's okay. Yep. That's,
0: that's probably why. Yeah, got it. Evolution be. really thought about BJJ when they, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when they designed their softball.
1: But then I guess you couldn't mouth uh, breathe, right? You couldn't mouth breathe if, if you had two different pipes because you'd have to have one dedicated to the nasal and one dedicated to the mouth. Because as soon as you put food in your mouth, if there's only one pipe that goes straight to the yeah, stomach, yeah, it's going pipe. down. And then you'd have what if you get a block? No, it's fuck. You're dead. All right, damn, God, God wins again. God damn it, Ooh. God.
2: No, no like I, I don't, I don't think the human body's perfect. perfect um, because we have some pretty cool like quirks and carry-ons and stuff. But yeah, I think like like again, like you have almost answered your own question there, right?
1: I did. I hated that moment. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've got it I, I win. I've win. i won life today yeah. mm, there I am I just failed again
0: <laughs> now next question is a would you rather mm. and we are going with Dean you read it out Please. would you
1: rather kiss Dean or kiss Liz no um, <laughs> eat a shot of so eat a shot glass full of wasps or eat the shot glass oh I'm a wasp alive or dead
0: mm, let's go with alive
1: I'm going to say alive but slightly tranquilized
2: oh i'm gonna go with the shot glass you're gonna eat the glass yeah i reckon i can chew that um and i'm not gonna get like well because part of the issue is like the you have like an inflammatory reaction to a wasp sting don't you yeah but who's to say you can't chew those mofos quick
1: enough that they don't get you also do you know how thick the bottom of a shot glass is
0: you could still poop that out it would hurt but you could do it
2: if you well, don't sleep, that, they're swallowing it. <laughs> well, there's a bloke who, um, there's that bloke who eats parts of planes and trains and stuff. Yeah, there's a few of them. Um, yeah. So, like, I assume, like, my, I suspect that if I chew it well enough, the acid in my stomach can probably at least do something to the glass, and then wow. I'll just ideally pass it.
0: Cut you up. Did, yeah.
2: Well, no, like, um, David Blaine's chewed
1: wine glasses and swallows them. There's a lot of people who have eaten glass. Um, and all yeah. For what but purpose? I've just thought of, like, don't worry about your stomach acid, Tom. I don't know if you've seen the video, but you can pour Coke on a bumper and you can clean it. So because it's so acidic, you could just drink Coca-Cola and glass and then that will melt everything. Else. Oh,
0: of course.
1: That's how <laughs> yeah, it Yeah, well, we, we all
0: know that Coke and sugar
2: are actually the devil.
0: And that's um, the real cause of obesity.
2: Well, yeah, there we are. It's like, it's like And it's not even the fact that we eat too much sugar. It's the fact that insulin gets secreted. <laughs> um Insulin is categorically the worst thing possible. um You don't want it at all. Actually, it's really bad for you.
1: Just yeah. another one. Another of those uh adaptations that we fucked up as humans. Yeah,
0: and also detox teas yeah. are awesome for weight loss while we're on. Yeah, the- but
2: only if they give you really bad diarrhoea.
0: Yeah, it has to give you diarrhoea to work.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the um,
1: and then if I you used to work up from that, you can just put the poo that you ate in pills and swallow those. <laughs>
2: yeah oh i used to work at a gym which i won't name um where one of the personal trainers did a juice fast for 42 days and 42 days and told me at the end of it that like he wasn't like graphic but it's just graphic but he wasn't like passing like normal feces anymore it was this weird like black substance and i've, I've said to him dude that's because like you've drunk juice for over a month. (laughs) Like, you don't have anything to pass anymore. And he was like, no, man, it's all the toxins being purged out of my body. Um, Then he got really, really sick and didn't get better until he started eating solid food again.
0: No, it's just a coincidence, Tom, because juice farts are obviously great for you. Yeah,
2: he's cleansed the toxins and his body got sick because in his eyes, it was purging the toxins. Like, no, dude, you just need food.
0: (laughs) I love (laughs) how he reconstituted like just changed the way that he looked at the problem as if it was the solution That is, he's
1: completely rationalized it i think we should just tell him that that's like once you get through all the solids your body then actually starts to take brain cells which are black and you shit them out
0: (laughs) that's so great that's so great Uh all right um yeah okay no that was our we will i had a second would you rather for you but I think we'll save it for next time uh-huh. now usually we finish with asking the guests where people can find them but as you are a flex coach flex underscore success on instagram
1: hit the quick links
0: hit the quick links uh-huh. indeed and what's going indeed. on with flex right now what do people need to know dean
1: uh that we're awesome we are awesome. We've, we're putting, you know, we, we, well, we released our uh, new website a few weeks back now, obviously. Um, uh-huh. We're still doing online consultations for anyone that wants a once off consultation or repetitive consultations. Yeah. Uh, we now also have the opportunity for people to get once off custom training programming, which is cool. Yep. And I know that's something that you thoroughly enjoy Tom. Um, yeah. So that yeah definitely. Those quick links. Like if you want to sort of engage in uh, speaking with a coach and, and getting a custom training program mm-hmm. to facilitate some form of performance or hypertrophy goal, we can help with
0: that mm-hmm. and
1: one-on-one spots for coaching is still open too. So
0: yeah. And you can check out the website to register your interest for two online courses we've got going on. So we've got a nutrition course, which works with building foundational knowledge. <laughs> um, so it's kind of like a, a step one course. We may build on it later. And the other one is a comp prep recovery program for those suffering with life after comp because oh. we know that it's really common in in various ways so you can just register your interest there and as soon as those courses are live we'll send you an email to let you know you can check it out see if you still want to do it and go from there
1: yep if not thanks everyone for listening in and we will be in your ears again in a few weeks time.
0: yep thanks everyone awesome. thanks um, so I mean. you.